Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a podcast with the opinion that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host, Henna Shah, and I'm back with the second of our summer interviews with some of the most effective campaigners and activists in our movement. This week, I interviewed Paul Polesland, barrister, lawyer for nature and extinction rebellion activist, about his political journey, defending the rights of nature and making the argument for saving the planet to a conservative audience. Now, I'll include the link in the show notes, but to learn more about Paul and his project, head to lawyersfornature.com, where you can find out more. And, as always, we rely on you to spread the word. So please, do us a favour this summer and share an episode you enjoyed with a friend or an enemy. We're not fussy. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes so it's easier for people like you to find us. Until next week, enjoy the interview and the sunshine. While Westminster is paralysed by Brexit and political infighting this summer, we can't ignore an even more existential threat facing us in the form of the climate crisis. From activists like Greta Thunberg, who has inspired thousands of young people with her school strikes, to politicians like Rachel Reeves, who are trying to commit us to reducing emissions in law, we'll need a broad coalition to tackle a challenge which could realistically lead to civilizational collapse. And that cheery note... I'm joined by Paul Polesland, a climate activist with Extinction Rebellion and self-described lawyer for nature, I'll be asking you more about that, to discuss making the arguments and building a climate coalition across party lines, the world of climate activism, and why we need to enshrine nature's rights in law. Now, thank you so much for joining us on this incredibly hot day in the podcast bunker in Westminster. How are you? Uh, I am very warm. <laughs> <laughs> is the right answer. If you lot can hear a sort of gentle whirring in the background, that is our one fan. And I apologise for the interference, but it is highly necessary, I think. But first up, I'd like to talk a little bit about you and your personal background. Now, I'm sure lots of our listeners here will sort of understand a little bit about climate activists and have a very strict sense of what a climate activist might look like uh, and also find the idea of someone who uh, advocates for nature as a lawyer unusual. So could you tell me a little bit about how you got here and why you think what you do is important? I'll try. It's a bit, it's a bit of a long story, my political journey, but I'll try and summarise it as quickly as possible. <laughs> very briefly, I am from a working class family and I went to a failing comprehensive, but I really enjoy studying. So I worked really hard. I managed to get into Cambridge to study law and wanted to become a barrister mainly to make money and for the social status that would give me. 
and I was a young conservative from the age of 15 to 22. Member, so they do mem- exist? Member of the party. <laughs> I have to, they, they are very weird though. That is very true. I was very weird as a, as a teenager. I then sort of tracked leftwards across the political spectrum, particularly around the 2010 student tuition fees protests. Yeah. And became a kind of quite hardcore left-wing anarchist, I suppose. And now I'm broadly of the left, but with an increasing, my main interest is in nature, the politics of nature, climate crisis, uh, the ecological crisis, that kind of thing. And basically, because I was already a barrister, it made sense for me to use the skills and the profession that I have in trying to meet that challenge, which is why I got involved in the ecological work that I'm doing. Could you tell me a little bit more about the ecological work that you do? So I understand that you're using your skills to sort of protect the environment and to help tackle the climate crisis. But I know lots of our listeners will be people who work in public affairs. They might be lawyers as well. They might be accountants and they might feel that... We talk a lot about how the climate crisis is existential, but they might feel, certainly I do, even though I work in politics, maybe more so because I work in politics, quite sort of powerless in this situation. So how, what made you feel empowered to do what you do? (laughs) I'm not sure I ever felt empowered. I just felt like I had to do something. Yeah. Also, I'd say as well throughout this, I want to refer to it more as the ecological crisis. Okay. Because to me, it's broader than just climate. Yeah. And um, it's a fundamental way that our civilization is engaging with the planet and with the natural world that is, um, that is the problem. So... I just became a lot more connected to the natural worlds throughout my 20s to a stage now where I'd say I deeply love and cherish the natural world. And so it was genuinely heartbreaking to see its destruction. And I already feel quite a lot of grief and genuine emotion about what we are doing to the planet. But I also try not to get too bogged down in that kind of uh, pessimism. So I thought, well, what can I try and do? So I just started putting myself out there and basically volunteered, for instance, to help um, Sheffield tree protesters stop their trees being chopped down. And I will basically represent environmental protesters, tree protectors, people who are doing whatever they can to try and protect nature. Quite a lot of that at the moment is actually dealing with injunctions. So where people want to destroy the environment, they're now getting these really hardcore injunctions to stop protesters protesting against it. So I tend to be trying to protect protesters from that. And and obviously just jump on that, I was going off my very rough script slightly, but Surely there's, outside of the ecological crisis, there's a broader question as well of people, obviously we are here, um, we're recording this in advance, but today is actually uh, Theresa May's last Prime Minister's question. So we'll be seeing Boris Johnson in number 10 shortly. Do you think there's a danger that with the ecological crisis and actually with lots of forms of activism that people are using the tools of the law even more to shut down protests? Yeah, I mean, this is a submission that I've made repeatedly in the High Court, that basically there are people with billions, if not trillions of of pounds at stake in perpetuating the ecological crisis, i.e. if we take the action necessary to stop our civilization collapsing, there are many companies, individuals that stand to lose billions of pounds and they will use whatever tools at their disposal to stop that. Uh, And that includes co-opting our legal system. And so, for instance, with the injunction cases, with fracking, I was crowdfunded a few hundred pounds a day to appear for a fracking activist and against me was a top QC on seven and a half thousand pounds a day, his junior on thousands of pounds a day, four city solicitors on thousands of pounds a day. The whole case cost them hundreds of thousands, but to them that's a drop in the ocean because they've got so much invested in the destruction of the natural world and ultimately our own civilization. Thanks for that. <laughs> um, we know what to say. It's just really dark for a moment. Well, <laughs> I mean, sort of had the helicopters whirring overhead and 
for a second I thought we were in a sort of um, apocalyptic mm. uh, I think movie. It's, it's, it's a really interesting question. Like for me, it feels like a constant tightrope walk between the darkness and the light at the moment. And you have to fully open yourself to the the darkness and the the pessimism of our situation. Yeah. Like in many ways, our society is pretty fucked if we don't do something. Unless you feel that, we are not going to take the action that we need to take. But at the same time, people are, if you fall off the tightrope the other way, there, there's a fatalism arising where people are like, well, it's too late for us to do anything. The world's yeah. screwed anyway, let's not bother. Yeah. So you need to constantly walk that tightrope. So have enough of the grief and the pessimism and the fear to stand up and do something. But at the same time, know that it is still all to pay for and we still have the chance to turn all this around. No, I completely agree. I, I actually feel really motivated by that. So there you go. And I'm a very pessimistic person, particularly at the moment. As well as being a practicing barrister, of course, you're also an environmental activist. So I know you've worked with Extinction Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And as you said, you used to be a young Tory. So <laughs> you you know how the uh, mind of the enemy, sorry, not the enemy, the, uh, <laughs> the uh, friend and colleague works. <laughs> and you've been thinking about how to make arguments, obviously, climate, nature, and the natural world have often been seen as causes of the left. Mm. Uh, protecting nature, protecting people, protecting things is generally a cause of the left. And as progressives, we seek to do what we can, but in order, and I think we'd all accept that, and this is a thing that we talk a lot about on this podcast, is the need to embed change by bringing people with you. So an example that we use quite a lot is... um, not to be too stereotypical, is the national minimum wage. Um, And the idea that that was a significant step forward for our society because it protects people, enable them to be paid well and fairly for their labor. I mean, it stagnated in recent years, but Mm. that was the idea behind it. And that that wouldn't have happened if groups of corporations and employers hadn't actually turned around and said, "We, we want them minimum wage too we understand the advantages we're brought into this bit of social change Mm. and so that's sort of a structural change I think Mm. things like the NHS and the minimum wage are now so deeply part of the fabric of our society that actually they're not things that could be reversed very easily and I think that with the ecological crisis you sort of need the same answer Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so I guess if we're trying to bring Tories with us how can we make those arguments yeah, I, I totally agree. I and mean, we need a fundamental realignment of our relationship and connection to the earth and the natural world. But I think actually, in some ways, that gives me hope because I think it's a, it is a much easier sell to different parts of the political spectrum. I should say as well, in terms of my politics at the moment, my, my ideal for the next government, next election would be a Labour government with, this is my dream, with Caroline Lucas as Secretary of State for the Environment and sort of a, a, a <laughs> red green sure coalition. Lots of opinions. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, would be, that would be my dream. But also I am, I'm increasingly realising that the kind of the siloization, if you like, of British politics into smaller yeah. and smaller groups is just really unhealthy and in a state of crisis, which is what we are in slash heading into, we actually need to come together. Firstly, I think I, it needs to go perhaps beyond just conservatives. And what I said earlier about these, the people who have uh, the money at stake. Mm. It's a really interesting point there because um, do is there anyone we need to paint as fundamentally evil? Like, do we paint BP executives as fundamentally unredeemable because they have so much money at stake? And I would argue, actually, even they, I don't, I don't think are unredeemable because even though they have so much money at stake, what 
is beyond that at stake, is the survival of our own civilization. And I'm sort of, as an interesting analogy, if anyone's seen the film Titanic, when... We uh, make those analogies a lot, don't okay, we? Okay, great, great, great. <laughs> there's, there's the scene where um, the, uh, the rich husband of Rose bribes the, one of the ship, ship's officers to get onto the lifeboats, but he doesn't get on in time and he tries to get on just as it's all about to go down. And he screams at the shipman, we had a deal. And the shipman takes the cash out of his jacket and throws it at the man and says, your money won't save you now any more than it will save me. And I kind of feel like that, like in 15, 20 years time, you, those BP executives can throw that cash away because ultimately it won't save them any more than it will save anyone else on earth if the whole thing goes down, which it will if we carry on on the same course. And so I think trying to make that argument to those people who are even heavily invested in the current carbon economy is, is a worthwhile thing. So that, that's at one end. Then, then we move slightly further along. And, you know, actually a harder sell than to conservatives is the growing far right. And it's something that we need to deal with. And in my mind, just counter protests and shouting at people, calling them stupid, calling them racist is, is not dealing with the problem. And I think the problem stems from many things, but actually fundamentally, many of those people I see at the sort of, um, on the news at these protests and what, what I gather from the movement is it's often quite poor disadvantaged people um, living in a, in, a, in a way that's deeply unhappy. And so I wonder about ways of trying to um, use nature connection to try and, and get to them and actually try and steer them away from the course that they're currently on. So saying to them, if, if you see protesters, you say, I, I love my country. It was like, well, what do you mean by that? What's your country? And then they say, Britain. Well, what, what do you mean? What, what's, what's Britain? I mean, ultimately, Britain is just a concept we came up with about 300 years ago and a, a political system that's only a few hundred years old, whereas actually our trees have been here thousands of years more than that and our rivers for tens, hundreds of thousands of years for that, our mountains. And so as a left winger, I used to get really anti-patriotism. And I still am anti-patriotism in the terms of things like the way it's used to find, like the mm. queen and the army and yeah. the political system. But I actually do love my country deeply in terms of this land, like this country. Um, and for me, getting greater connection to that land is a way to really build a bridge to people who are mm heading ever pulled ever more towards extremism and um, those kind of things. And then finally, so with conservatives, it's a, perhaps a, th 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 those are the hard, there's a spectrum of difficulty yeah, from no, yeah. executives <laughs> to far right <laughs> racists and mo moving along to conservatives. So I suppose once you've done those, those two, the normal Tories are quite easy. Well, not necessarily easy, but I think that there are, there are ways of framing the arguments. Mm. And so again, I, um, I recently had an article in the Sunday Express about why I was a member of Extinction Rebellion. Mm. And I felt it was more important to have that article there than in The Guardian, because everyone in The Guardian oh, yeah. is, is, is pretty much... They all agree with you. Agree. It's a massive yeah, exactly. echo chamber. Yeah. And so it's like, it's, it's really important to put it out to other people. And that, so that some of the themes I riffed on in that, in that piece were things like the love of country. So actually, I do love my country and I love, I, I want to protect its trees, its waters, its mountains, um, and to restore the nature and ecology of this land. And other things like um, whether quite a big argument used by those on the right often as well. What about China and India? You know, they've got way more emissions than we yeah, have. Yeah, that's we... an argument that people often make in our area of yeah. politics as well, like what, what, on the left what, as well. Yeah. So what about China and India? You know, there's a, there's a few sort of rebuttals to that. Um, mm. Firstly, uh, that we all have to do our bit. And you can sort of bring in uh, maybe analogies and things like the Second World War. So in the Second World War, we stood alone but we still didn't give in. You know, we didn't just say, oh, well, what about France? They're not doing it. And America's not bothering at the moment. During, you know, during the darkest hour, America didn't even join the war. But we wouldn't point to other countries and say, well, why are they not doing anything? We understood that the challenge was existential 
and there is no choice. There was no choice but to fight. And I see, I see it as the same level of existential catastrophe now, that even if the world does go down, we do have a duty, a moral duty to, to fight in whatever way we can. But more than that, I think, I would say, if, if you believe that Britain punches above its weight in the world, which many right-wingers do, and I kind of do as well, maybe we can lead by example. You know, maybe we can do the right thing and bring other countries with us. And if we show that we are taking climate change and ecological crisis seriously, other people will see that and follow us. And the sort of the phrase I use is that we started the industrial revolution. So let us start the ecological revolution, you know, let us open the door to the next phase of humanity and lead the way. Of course, the challenge with these things, Dr. Putin's spot, is as you were speaking, one thing that really occurred to me is we're talking about BP executives and you made the analogy with the Titanic. And then you were talking about mobilization in terms of us basically being at war, which I think is completely fair. But do you think that there's a challenge with, unlike something like a war or a short-term and immediate existential threat that everyone can see, the challenge with the ecological crisis is that it won't necessarily be one big sort of day after tomorrow style Mm. flood. Mm. It will be, you know, Increasing numbers of migrants, increasing prices of food. And how do you think, as people trying to advocate for our planet, we can tackle that and we can make the case to show it's as urgent as we know it is? Yeah, All the I mean, easy questions. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is a hard question. Um, and in many ways, actually, I, I sort of bro- I broke my own rule there by talking on, on a war footing. And there are many uh, activists that say we shouldn't use that analogy. For me, that takes it into another point of how, how we talk to so conservatives aside, how do we talk to ordinary people about this? Um, how do we deal with the fact that this will entail sacrifice? And for me, I would reframe that as trying to say things, it's, it's not a sacrifice. And actually, if, if we can reconnect with the natural world more and with each other more, um, that it may not seem like a sacrifice to do these things. Um, and that fundamentally, actually, the way that many people are living now is, is very unhappy. And it's using consumerism to fill the gap in what is often a deep lack of connection to other people and, and to the natural world. And many of the most destructive things happening, I see it as a, as a result of people's ultimate unhappiness. So the, the, the need to fly halfway around the world to go on holiday, to relax, is often a sign of the stress that we're under in this country. Um, and at the moment saying you can't fly is actually um, seen as a deep, like sort of authoritarian imposition and sacrifice. But what if we create ways of enjoying life in this country that are beautiful in of themselves? You don't need to fly halfway around the world. And I'm, I'm in this process myself. So up, up a couple of years ago, one of my great, one of my great uh, hypocrisies was flying. You know, I, I really need to go to Thailand. I need to get to a beach and relax and have some sunshine. Um, and... I realized the hypocrisy of that and started to reframe it. It's like, well, actually, what if I went to explore my own world more, you know, without flying? So I just, my main holiday this year I just got back from was wild swimming in France where I got the train and in beautiful sunshine, incredible mountains, swimming, beautiful towns. Yes. And I'm about to head off on my next little trip down into Devon to see this bit, see the, the British countryside. And actually, I genuinely don't miss flying. I don't yes. miss that hassle. I don't miss that stress. I don't want to fly to Thailand, genuinely. And so trying to convince other people of that is quite important. And that goes throughout loads of different things. Like if you look at 
like driving. Does, does anyone like really, when you look at someone in the car, does anyone really look like they're having a great time? <laughs> no, no one. Depends what music they've got. On. Yeah, but not not <laughs> that many people look too ecstatic when they're driving. And actually, like for me, driving in London is like horrendous. It's, it's absolutely awful. And so there are so many things where actually, if we just shift the narrative slightly, we can say, do do we need to be doing all these things which are destructive of the planet? And actually, would we be happier? if we were doing things differently. I think most people would. And so this goes into some other, other things I'm interested in, which is sort of creating a collective, a, a politics of collective joy and a politics of enchantment. So actually for many people, obviously we need to get the economics sorted first. And I'm sort of hopeful there's loads of people on that already, so I don't need to worry too much <laughs> about that. You know, uh, there's, there's loads of policy working on the economics and redistribution. But to me, that never goes far enough. Like even if there was decent minimum wage and even if there was decent uh, redistribution and, and a wealth tax and all that kind of thing, I still think there's another layer of happiness, which is to do with, yeah, enchantment about genuine love and connection to each other and to the world. And that for me is something that politics hasn't really begun to properly explore yet, but which is, I think, a rich seam of um, Mm. interesting ideas. And I completely agree. That's actually something that we've mentioned in the podcast recently. That's something that they've just started to look at in New Zealand is looking less at GDP and more at... A uh, measure they call national happiness, but I don't quite know what national happiness well, includes. So, so I, I, I would actually, I, as, you was, as I was saying, I was like, I actually really need to give you a couple of examples that have come up because otherwise it sounds really far too wanky. Um, so <laughs> you did say I'm, politics of entitlement. I was like, I'm not sure. I yeah, no one knows that. Quite, I, mean, I don't either um, because it's just, it's just being it's uh, it's a concept that's only just about coming about. And I and a number of people I know are kind of working. I think yeah. a few other people are, but it's very much in its infancy. I'm actually running a workshop at the World Transform this year to try and work out what mm. is it. We've had a couple of sort of mini workshops and gatherings about it. And some of the ideas that have come up already are things like um, every um, 16 to 18 year old gets given a free, a government funded rail card to explore the UK. Mm. So they get to see their country and experience it and mm. get to know other places and break down those barriers between town and country, between different people. Mm. And I was thinking today as I was cycling over, it's like, well, actually, beyond a rail card, let's also say free entry to or the cathedrals, or the castles, or the places in the UK. Just give mm. all 16 to 18 year olds free entry to that so they can go and see it. And things like thinking imaginative about what, what we can do to connect people, like um, having twinning between the rural parts of Britain and cities. Mm. You know, we have town twinning, which was used after the Second World War to bring Europe together. Let's bring Britain back together and twin Hackney with a town in the countryside. Yeah. And so you, when students go to do their field work in each one, they go to those places yeah. and there's more cooperation and you, and you, you have a specific and place in the UK. And you see how other people connect. live and you see exactly. different communities and the way they work. Yeah. And other ideas, really yeah. simple one, like um, we need to plant more trees in this country. Definitely. That's, everyone agrees on that, both for climate change and also for reforestation, all this other stuff. But how do we do that in the way that's not just like stick them in the ground with a plastic tube? Um, well, let's imagine the UK government gives every citizen a tree for every major life event. So if you register a birth with the state, you get a tree, you plant it and that becomes that child's tree. You have a marriage, you get a, you get a tree from the state. And when, when, when you come of age, when you, have, when you get your rail card, you also get a tree and you get to go and plant it somewhere out in the UK. It'd be really simple, really cheap, but would connect people with this land and just like, yeah, bring a little bit of enchantment back to people's lives. And th- those are some of the basic ideas. There are many others you could do, but it's just thinking about the things that aren't necessarily about you know, grand state spending or taxes, that kind of stuff, just like small ideas that bring genuine joy and enchantment back to people. Making our rivers swimmable again. So actually every town just has a small river swimming spot where you can go with a picnic blanket, sit in the sunshine, 
and swim with your friends and with your family. Like how much more joy would be brought to our country if everybody in the country had access to a place like that? For me, it's incalculable and worth far more than something like HS2 or that kind of stuff, mm. just spending tens of billions on just like small things that genuinely bring more joy and enchantment to people's lives. Well, you've got me convinced. <laughs> and I'm not sure about everyone else, but you've definitely got me convinced. I think we're going to wrap up here, but I think one of the great things about talking to you, Paul, is hearing your passion for nature and ecology and actually hearing about how you can be a sort of real-life professional person and also have a deep interest in activism and politics and changing things, even when progressive parties aren't in power and it looks like the country's going to shit because we've got Brexit and Boris Johnson and we've sort of got, you know, racists to the left and right of us. Um, if someone listening to this wanted to go away and do a couple of things to help start learning a little bit more about how to protect ecology in this country or an easy way to sort of engage a little bit more. I know activist spaces and things like that can seem quite scary a lot of the time or quite different, particularly if like, it's not what you're used to. Do you have any tips or thoughts? Yeah, where do you start? Um, yeah, I haven't done my plug for Rights of Nature even, so uh, we didn't Sorry, have time. Sorry, we forgot to that. <laughs> um, uh, but do you have a website that people can go to? Uh, yes, although the email address is a bit is a bit um, temperamental at the moment. Um, best to join, if you go on Facebook, there's the Lawyers for Nature Facebook page and group, and you can message via that. And what I'll do is I'll put it in the show notes so you can click on it and you can learn a little yeah. bit more about it. Yeah, and in terms of um, climate activism, I really do recommend Extinction Rebellion. There's the big uprising in October, I think October the 7th onwards. Although Extinction Rebellion, I think from the outside can seem quite like a, I don't know, it's already been labeled extremist. You can go along and you can chat to people and you don't have to be you know, on the front lines being arrested. It's almost like a carnival atmosphere, the one back in April. So I do recommend just going down there in October and, and checking it out and maybe getting involved in your local groups if you want to do a climate activism. But also just, how to put this, go find out your local nature protection and restoration projects do you have a local river that has a society that's that's, that's um, seeking to restore it do you have local parks where they're doing tree planting or local nature reserves like go and connect with nature and your, your local nature and do what you can to try and restore and protect it great thanks a lot paul thanks so yeah, much for having, having you the rest of you we will see you next time remember to subscribe rate and review and tell your friends so that they can plant trees and we can save the planet <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.